Bible, if you'll open it, please, to Psalm chapter 9, Psalm 9, and we'll begin reading in verse 15, Psalm 9. And I do hope you'll be back with us for the evening service tonight and stay with us for the uh, birthday fellowship to follow. So I hope that you'll stay with us for that. This morning I speak to you on the matter of uh, the fallacy of fathers. And uh, and without a doubt we can uh, cannot continue as a culture or society or a nation or even a city of Franklin. We we cannot continue teaching fallacies such as man evolved from a monkey from uh, that primordial pond back over there in time. And we can't continue to teach that uh, there is no God or at least act like it even if we say there is one. And we cannot keep redefining marriage. And we cannot put two males together and call it marriage. And we cannot think of ourselves as to be the opposite gender, and presto, we become so. It just can't be. And we can't do all that and then expect our country to be safe and secure and peaceful, fulfilling, and be a wonderful place to live. can't be done. It just can't be done. Everything in the Bible cries out against it. And one place it cries out against it is Psalm chapter 9, and look at verse number 15. Psalm 9, verse 15, the Bible says, The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. Don't forget that. Heathen there are anyone who does not know God and does not have a personal relationship with Him. Those people are sunk down into a pit that they made. It means if you just follow the pagans' thinking, you'll end up with all the things that I said we can't continue to do. Uh, this was these ideals and these fallacies that we've come up with in this country were not God-made but fallacies. In fact, they're very opposite of what He said. But it's exactly what the heathen or the pagan or the lost world thinks. And so, in order to accommodate their interest, they created them. In verse 15, it says, "In the net which they hid, is their own foot taken." Uh, in America, we got what we paid for. We have become what we were headed toward. We have arrived. And now the problem is many people don't like it. Even on the liberal left side, they don't like it. But they're there. And what they fail to understand is the fallacies that they embraced because at a given time they spoke of liberties and freedoms that they thought everybody ought to have. Then we ended up where we were headed. And now where we are, nobody seems to like But in verse number 16, it says, The Lord is known by the judgment which he executed. Uh, That's another way of saying he recorded in his word what he would do, and he's a man of his word, he's a God of his word, and you can be assured that, um, be sure, your sin will find you out with the judgment that God had listed uh, for that sin way back when. So uh, he, he is without a doubt known for his judgment and he executeth them. And it says the wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. And uh, then verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, and let not man prevail, let the heathen be judged in thy sight, and put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know 
that the nations may know that the nations may know themselves but to be men. America forgotten that. America has forgotten that we're just a nation of men, and that means men and women. And oh, by the way, fallen men and women. Uh, we all came into this world as lost, and until we're born again, we will die lost. And lost people do not go to heaven. And unless there has been an event in a person's life, the Bible holds up in John 3 as being born from above or being born again. Those people are not going to heaven, so there's no way in the world we have a right to expect people who are not going to heaven to live by heaven's economy or rules. And the consequence of that is the rules and the judgment spoken of in Psalm 9, those are the economies or the rules of heaven. Our nation has forgotten that uh, we're just a nation of men and women, fallen men and women, and it thinks that uh, somehow, some way, we will avoid the inevitable by virtue of being a blessed country. You know, well, we put in God we trust on our coins and on various sundry labels for our nation, and we think somehow that that's going to cast aside the judgment of God that he has on a people that continue to ignore him or forget him, as the text says. Well, there's one thing for sure, that a major fallacy that's set forth in our society is the fallacy of the insignificance of fathers. Our society, more than most, has really de-emphasized what the Bible is crystal clear about, and that is the significance of a father in a home. Uh, our society, and, and by the way, it's easily proven, very easily proven by uh, President Barack Obama. Because in his book, Dreams from My Father, he explained his quest for identity and early in his uh, quest for life. The fact is, he says it was obvious that some of the uh, that uncertainty of who he was was because of his black African father, who he told Newsweek magazine back in March of 2008, way back then, that left him, that is his black father, left him and his white mother at a young age and later returned to his country of Kenya. President Barack Obama moved to Indonesia with his mother, whom he told Newsweek magazine back there in March of 2008, that she was idealistic. He described her as, quote, lonely witness, a lonely witness for secular humanism. And that was when he was six years old that he realized that. I have wondered myself in recent days what America would be like today if President Barack Obama, his father, had been a godly man, set out biblical examples before him, and his mother and he would uh, be together yet and not been abandoned by his father. Sadly, the president's family problems are all too com common and usual and general in America, and even, for that matter, the world at large. Fathers failing miserably at leading their families and training their children to love the Lord God and to know the difference between truth and false teaching and exert all the spiritual influence that a father can to point their children to Jesus Christ as personal Savior as early as possible. It's a major failure. 
And the fact of the matter is, it's a truth hard to stomach, but so very true that the breakdown of our families is the single greatest contribution to the breakdown of our country, our beloved America. People just don't want to face that because instead of laying it at the feet of some leader somewhere, it comes to the leadership of individual homes. And that's too personal and that's too close. It's easier to blame the president and the congress and the governor and all those folks who make laws and do things. But the fact of the matter, none of that would have much effect on the local families if we, as fathers, we rise up and lead our families the way we should. And the fact even, um, you know, the truth of the matter, everything that's wrong with America had its first heartbeat in a home somewhere, just traced the steps backward of our president. He went, had, came from a broken home. He's not sure of, uh, in fact, who he was. His identity, he says, was in question. His mother was a, a secular humanist. The role model of his father was that you can, whenever you get to the point you want to, you can just leave your wife and you can leave your children and you can go off in your own direction and do your own thing. That and a lot more is the soil of life from which the president of our country was reared and grew. And the fact is, fathers, the question I would have for men sitting here is, what is your family going to produce? And what fathers do or what fathers fail to do will largely decide what your family comes out to be. And we just can't seem to get a grip on that in America. It's been often pointed out that the importance of the family is seen that Satan did not bother Adam until he got a wife. Adam was a male. Eve was a female. You put a male and a female together, children are usually the offspring. What happens in this particular case, those children grew up and immediately... Something was wrong. First family ever created dysfunctional. Brother kills brother. Now listen carefully, fathers. If the children in your home hate one another, the fault falls at your feet. You cannot have a father who teaches and properly role models to his family and have brothers or sisters hating each other. And all you have to do is trace in the snow. It goes back to where father sits and stands and works and operates and attitude he took in the home. So every time I find a family where you have siblings that hate each other, I found a father who failed. And we don't like to face that. That's too personal. It's, it's better to face the president. He's wrong. Or, or the coming folks who are running for president. They're wrong. They just all messed up. And all. It's easy to blame them. But boy, when it comes down to producing our city, our county, our country, and our world, it comes down to us. And that's us, you and me. And it comes down in this case to fathers. The fact of the matter is, it's um, interesting that our Bible speaks about and a great deal about fathers. The word father, or fathers possessive, or fathers plural, are used over 1,600 times in the Scriptures. This uh, father factor that we've often talked about is simply the tremendous responsibility regarding what we pass on to our children and what they do and become because of our influence and our impact on their life. I want to show you from Scripture carefully something about this. Look, if you would, at 1 Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 18. Look at 1 Peter chapter number 1 and look at verse number 18. 
1 Peter chapter 1 in verse number 18, here's what the Bible says. 1 Peter 1, 18. Simple verse and taking in its context, it's about the call of Christians or called a Christian commitment to really reflect who you are in your profession. That's what the context is. But in verse 18 he says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Now he's talking about believers in the context and he's talking about them living out their Christian faith and he says in this case he reminds them of how they were redeemed but he also reminds them of some details that you should never forget. Before they were born again these believers were no different from the rest of the pagan world. There are three things in this text you need to know. First off when he says that these unconverted pagans, days in their days, are described, first off, in as vain conversation. They, they were not redeemed from the corruptible things such as, you know, silver and gold, from your vain conversation. Vain conversation, interesting word. It means simply empty lifestyle, aimless conduct, Hopeless future or lack of identity. Lack of identity. You wonder where the president had, had no identity? Because he was in vain conversation lifestyle. We all were. Well, who in the world would have thought about that? But the fact is, look further. That's what it was. Now look, if you would, at how it came about. It says, received, in verse 18, received by tradition... The word receive in the Greek means handed down or transferred or passed on. So whatever he's talking about, he's talking about it being handed down. Something you hand down to someone, you transfer to them, you pass on. The Greek word for tradition means, you know, he's talking about received by tradition. Tradition means transferred by precept of law or rules or guidelines for life and living. Well, that's how you got it. What it was you got is a vain conversation. Empty lifestyle, aimless conduct, hopeless future, and no identity. What the fact of the matter is how you got it was it was received by tradition. Something that's passed down to you. Now somebody tell me where they got all that. Look at the verse. Where did it come from? Fathers. Fathers. That's where it came from. So the fact of the matter is the text of Scripture, God's Word, succinctly says you got it from your fathers. That's where it came from. What it was is this vain conversation. Empty lifestyle, aimless conduct, hopeless future, and no identity. That's what. Received by tradition, that's how we got it. And where we got it was from our fathers. Now the thing about that is to say that it's no small task now that a father has to do more than fathers of the past had to do because they've got greater competition the world at large is certainly, as I wrote in the bulletin this morning, you have to understand there's, a, there's an internal pressure uh, of sinful nature that we are born with, but there's also the external sinful you know, nature of the society in which we live. So you have this internal issue and you have this external issue working against us, rearing our families, our children, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So it takes greater effort now than ever before, and we have never been busier. 
We've never had as many time-saving gadgets in, in the whole of existence of invention than we got right now. And yet, we can't and don't have the time to do what it's going to take to have children rise up and follow the Lord and be faithful stewards of the manifold grace of God. The fact is, I know, and you know it, that our pagan godless society has done so much, worked so hard to make fatherless children the norm of our society. They even have a name, a respectable name, may I tell you for it, at least politically correct kind of name for it. It's called, it's called Single Mom Home. The Bible, Bible cuts right to the, right to the chase and cuts no slack and calls it fatherless. It's not a single mom home. It's a fatherless home. And our society has done an outstanding marketing job of getting us to believe that there's something almost noble about a single mom home. There's nothing noble about that except it just works the woman to death to try to keep up with something that she can't possibly do. And Bible sets forth clearly she cannot do it and so nonetheless, it happens and it works out where that our society keeps trumpeting this idea. But the Bible speaks forthrightly. It's a fatherless home. And that's not a good thing. In fact, that's a very bad thing. And the Bible makes it very clear that it's a very bad thing. It's interesting, as a pastor, a preacher of God's Word, I am absolutely convinced that the responsibility of building a godly home and families lies at the feet of the man, the husband, the father. So, with the statistics showing or indicating that about half of all the American children will go through at least a part of their lives without having a father in the home, the problem, the mess that we are in as America regarding crime, gangs, Drugs, drinking, divorce, living together without marriage, homosexuality, and the list grows on and on are all going to be and get worse. Our young people with no dad or father try to decide who they are and how they are to live and, and how they are to face life. The fact is it is true and somewhat encouraging that the Bible speaks of the fatherless with a tone of tenderness and pity. But it is crystal clear that it is not by divine design to be a fatherless person. Our society speaks of it as a single mom home. And by the way, if you were to, to, uh, <clears throat> were to rear in a home, if you were individually, where your mother reared you without the husband or your father, and you've now come to Christ and are living for the Lord, you, my friend, are an exception to the rule. And I assure you, I assure you, there is no statistic that suggests for a second that most do. The statistics prove again and again and again, most won't. So if you did, and if you do, may God remind you every single day, you probably got the best illustration of the mercy and the grace of God because that's not the plan. 
And you had better thank God every single day of your life for the grace and mercy that He's shown you and worked in your life to that end. I was reading a few weeks ago, there are over 40 references in the Old Testament and only one in the New Testament regarding the issue of fatherless. I found that fascinating. There are 40 references in the Old Testament, but most of those were not from abandonment. None of the context of the ones I read would suggest it. Most of those were by people getting killed or circumstances where the father was gone, but not abandoning his family. What's interesting, in Psalm 10 and verse number 14, the Bible says this, Thou hast seen it, for thou beholdest mischief and spite, to requite it with thy hand. The poor committeth himself unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. Now, the first thing you interpret with a verse is when you read it where it says he's the helper of the fatherless is that somebody dropped the ball. So somebody over here is uh, fatherless and the Lord God has to step up and help the fatherless because the father flunked the program. The father failed. And so God himself has to step in, and he's the helper of the fatherless. Suggest his tenderness on the part of the Lord to step in and do what's needed. His very nature is to be a help to the helpless, a friend to the friendless, and to meet the needs of the needy. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. When you come to the New Testament, it changes just a bit. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit, to visit, The first thing on the list, to visit the fatherless. The widows come in second. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and keep himself unspotted from the world. The very first thing it says in there, for people who respond in their Christian faith and to reflect it in ways of reaching out to people, first thing on the list is to go help the fatherless. Not the widow first. The fatherless first. Now, it's an interesting thing about that. Describing as pure religion, undefiled before God, is to visit the fatherless. That's a fascinating, fascinating take. In fact, in our society, that's almost unheard of. But it's interesting also to note. Fatherless and widows are on the same level. She lost a husband. The child lost a father. Equals the same problem. Even in the text it says in James 1.27 to visit the fatherless and widows in their, their, plural pronoun, their affliction. Equal problem, equal circumstance, and equally needs help. So the helper of the helpless steps up and begins to work toward it. The implied point in visiting them is to meet a need. It's not just to go sit down and chit-chat with them. It's to go meet a need. Now, talking might be helpful, but they're probably deeper than that. There's a need, and the ideal of that visit to the fatherless is to meet a need that they have that they still had. If they still had a father, they would not have. Indicates very clearly a father is supposed to be to meet a need into a family, and that need is something that nobody else will be able to meet. Yeah, no mother can be a father to a child. No mother can be a father to a child. 
And we need to get that in our heads. Society will intoxicate you with this foolishness of paganism and humanism to teach us that. And that's not what the Bible says is possible. It says for other believers to step up and be a father to the fatherless. To do what you can do to help those people in that situation becomes a believer's responsibility. And one of the aspects of proving our legitimacy of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is that we have a Father in heaven, and we may even have an earthly Father, and we have an obligation to step up and say, Hey, I'll, I'll visit the Father. So I'll do what I can do to do my part in that. That passage of Scripture sees it and says it very clear. Something else to be noted, and that is the Father's role in the Old Testament time was so crucial that if a man died, his widow, was to marry the next of kin. Deuteronomy 25.5 says so. So if the father died often, the, the, the woman who was left a widow was to marry the next of kin. For one single reason. It wasn't because she could have made it on her own and had a single mom home and been blessed by government. That's not what it says. It says, no, no, there's a, uh, there's a home here and at least fatherless the children. And there must be a father in that home. There's no if and buts about it. There's no excuses and there's no exceptions. And every time a father leaves one of those, I personally believe the judgment of God falls upon him greater and more severe because it's such a major, monumental issue in the whole of Scripture. It's also to be noted, this was a, to prevent a single mom home and to provide both a father and a mother for children who were born to that home. should be noted, most of the teaching regarding family life in God's Word assumes, assumes the presence of two parents always, a husband and a wife, a mother and a father. God's desire and His design for the family is that it be first Christ-centered home, and then it be a marriage-centered home with the husband and wife's relationship taking priority and precedent over all other relationships in the home, and that the parents, mom and dad, not, not the children, determining the agenda in light of the fact of what they deem is best for their family to be righteous, reasonable, and responsible. The home is not to be a child-centered place. The home is not to be a child-centered place. When you do that, you take the first steps toward wrecking a marriage. I would be afraid to tell you how many men show up at my office and have over the years that I've been in the ministry that was created by a jealousy of a first child born into the home because the mother lost herself in the child and forgot the guy who was with her as her husband. She gloated so much over the children that the man did not come home for supper one night, to be exact. He stayed at his office. You know how long it was before he uh, got a phone call from his wife? The first feeding of the baby that he was supposed to do. And he told her, You don't need me. You feed the baby. And when you need me to love you, you call me. And he hung the phone up. And he came over to my place in the office, a late evening meeting. He was trouble would be a, a minor word what he was. This guy was just absolutely devastated. Devastated. And the problem was that the mother had caught up so much in the child 
that the husband felt like he was just he was just accessory. He was a fifth wheel out there. Had nothing to do with it. This was just you know it's just this baby. Oh, this is the most wonderful thing in the world. And the Bible stands in a monumental way against that happening. It is first Christ-centered, and then it's marriage-centered, and then it's child-centered. Way down the list, but not first. That's why you don't want to buy a child-first tag from the state. Preaches the wrong sermon. Preaches contrary to what the Bible teaches. It's not kids first. In fact, the matter is, kids will have trouble if they don't believe mom and dad really care about each other and love each other the way they should. And the first thing and the best thing that any parent and two parents can do to for the success of their children is to love each other. You do that and a lot of the other stuff just fall into place. So the problem in the context in the Bible makes, I think, very, very clear and does it very succinctly. By the way, I can tell, I can tell when uh, a child comes from a, a child-centered home. I can tell. I can tell right here at church. And let me tell you how you can tell. You'll be talking to somebody, and as you're talking to them uh, and, and to a parent, you'll be talking to one of the parents, and a child will come up. The child of, the, of these people. And this child will not stop until they interrupt you to the point that mom or dad one have to stop and address the child. Why? Because they have been taught that the world centers around them. And so when they come up to talk to you, they expect you to bow down to their shrine and say, Oh, loving one, what wantest thou? See, and when you do that, then they're right in their environment. That's, that's the way they were reared. That's the way they were taught. That's the way they were trained. And now they expect everybody to bow to the shrine. But let me tell you something. Boy, are they going to get a rude awakening when they leave home. The rest of us don't bow to their shrine. On one occasion, only one. So I'm not as bad as you thought I was. Only one occasion did I ever say to the child, you wait just one moment. Kid thought I'd shot him. You know, he stood there almost frozen. And I think it shocked the parents as much as I shocked the child. But see, wait just one moment. And I just kept talking. And then I do with the person I was talking with what I sometimes do with my wife when I'm losing an argument. I just talk, you know. I just talk. Just, it doesn't matter what you're talking about. You can talk about Ford trucks or, or Ferraris. It doesn't matter. Just talk. Don't let anybody say anything. I just kept talking. The parent looked at me a little funny, and the child just kept standing there and waited until we were done. And I said, excuse me now. You can speak. Now, look, that's not being mean. That's being biblical. Because when children get the idea that they control the environment, they'll try to control the environment everywhere they go. And you don't want that. Remember, they're all born sinners. Sweetest kid you ever met in your life in the diapers is that way. I mean, I was that way. I was the sweetest kid you'd ever want to know when I was in diapers. Weeks after I got out of diapers, I was a terror. Now look, the Bible was not written by some naive ghost writer. It was written by holy men of God who were inspired by the Spirit of God to help us know how to live on planet Earth. And if we can't get this right about our children, we'll miss everything else. By the way, that's why in the Scriptures, if you uh, read your epistles of Paul, for instance, it's interesting that it's for this very reason in both places, both in Colossians and Ephesians, 
you'll see that the Apostle Paul addresses the family. And when he does, he begins in each of those occasions, instruction and direction, address to the husband and wife, not the kids first. In Ephesians chapter number, excuse me, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18, he said, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. In Ephesians 5.22, he said, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Colossians 3.20, then he says, Children, First thing out of his mouth is obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. So I say to you, the Bible is clear that it's not supposed to be, a home is not supposed to be a child-centered thing first. It's supposed to be marriage-centered first. Many times uh, the actions that we talk about this is suggested uh, on what I call an ongoing pattern uh, of action that gradually uh, builds up into deep-seated anger. That is, when Paul wrote in Colossians 3.21, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. This provoking and this uh, producing wrath in a child's life, usually something that gradually builds up deep-seated anger and resentment that in time boils over or explodes in outward hostilities. And many times these actions were never intended to provoke a child in any fact it was most cases most likely was intended for their good and, and, and but they weren't. One common cause of this provoking the wrath is the well meaning overprotection of the child. And it may be a, a smother mother or a, it may be a kind of situation that has to do with a fearful father, but whatever the case is it just doesn't uh, work out. But when it's either of those cases, a, a smothered mother or if it's a fearful father, uh, it needs to be stopped. It needs to be stopped. Because in time, it will produce the very opposite effect of what parents want it to do. You know, they think that they're endearing themselves to their child, and, and from all appearances, they would be because the child loves you to give him all the, uh, you know, whatever he, he wants and to do whatever he will and to be right there for him. If he starts to fall on his knee, you, you catch him and don't let him hit his knee and don't let him bump his head and don't let him just you know, kill yourself trying to be overly protective. Now, listen. I ran across this a few years ago, and I read it to the church years ago, but uh, if it's like me, you won't remember it any more than I did when I went back and saw it. But let me read it to you. From Paul Harvey, one of my favorite uh, news guys, you know, before he died. And what he was talking about is this is the opposite of a smother mother and a fearful father. Here's what he wrote. We tried so hard to make things better for our kids that we made them worse. For my grandchildren, I'd like a lot better. I'd really like for them to know about hand-me-down clothes and homemade ice cream and leftover meatloaf sandwiches. I really would. I hope you learn humility by being humiliated and that you learn honesty by being cheated. I hope you learn to make your own bed and mow the lawn and to wash the car. And I really hope nobody gives you a brand new car when you get 16. It would be good if at least one time you can see puppies born and your old dog die. I hope you get to a black eye fighting for something that you really believe in. 
I hope you have to share a bedroom with your younger brother or sister. Oh, and it's all right if you have to draw a line down the middle of the floor. That's okay. But when he or she wants to crawl in under the covers with you because you're, they're scared, I hope you'll let him. I hope you have to walk uphill to school and with your friends and hope you live in town where you can do it safely. On rainy days when you have to catch a ride, I hope you don't ask the driver to drop you two blocks away so you won't be seen riding with someone as uncool as your mother. If you want a slingshot, I hope your dad teaches you how to make one instead of buying one. I hope you learn to dig in the dirt and read books. And when you learn to use computers, I hope you also learn to add and subtract in your head. I hope you get teased by your friends when you have your first crush on a boy or a girl. And when you talk back to your mother, I hope you learn what ivory soap tastes like. And may you, you skin your knee climbing in a mountain and burn your hand on a stove and stick your tongue to a frozen flagpole. And I'm not recommending these. And I sure hope you make some time to sit on the porch with your grandma and grandpa and you go fishing with your uncle. And may you feel sorry at a funeral and joy in the holidays. I hope your mother punishes you when you throw a baseball through your neighbor's window and that she hugs you and kisses you at Christmas when you give her a plaster mole of your hand. These things I wish for you, tough times and disappointment, hard work and happiness. To me, it's the only way. It's the only way. It's really the only way to appreciate life. This is written with a pen. It's sealed with a kiss. I'm here for you, and if I die before you do, I'll go to heaven and wait for you. I'd say that's a pretty good list. And I would also say that it's uh, the opposite of overprotectionism. Another common cause for provoking a child to wrath is overindulgence. This is really the other side of overprotection for a father or mother, for that matter, who is excessively permissive. A father who spoils their children or child is just as likely to provoke one to wrath as overprotective father would. Counseling of young people and the question they answer make it clear. Children given too much freedom begin to feel insecure and unloved. But after all, that's what the Bible says. Proverbs 13 and verse 24, He that spareth the rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Fathers who uh, indulge or coddle a misbehaving, rebellious child is actually telling the child he is not loved. We do not love you. We do not have an interest in you the way we should. And then they get to the point of frustration and eventually wrath is created. Another cause of provoking children to wrath is favoritism. Jacob and Esau is a biblical example of such a family. And what's interesting in this is that another cause of, of um, provoking to wrath is this business of pushing pressing achievement beyond reasonable bounds for a child. A child learns his best is never good enough, so he or she is quite, just quits trying 
and lives off, so to speak, the welfare of the world with no job the rest of their lives. And by the way, this has been the case. Counseling sessions and magazines for which we get counseling aids have told them more than once of a child living in a setting where they just could not seem to attain to what was expected of them. And so they gave up. They actually ran away from home. They went to California. They got on the street, and they lived off the streets of California for four years. And in that time period while they were there, it was that a, a Christian community ministry uh, reached out to them and brought them in under some what we call pastoral family counseling and just begin to explain to them, you know, or try to help them to get off the street, get back home and so forth. And they didn't want to go back home. And when they sat down with this Christian counselor, it became crystal clear that uh, in the world out there, the world does not know God and therefore, by and large, has really no set standard. You can just do whatever you want to do. It's a hard life, but it's lived by some. And this young person told this counselor that I'm perfectly content to go through this. I have, I have no regrets about it and so forth. And then he asked the question, do you miss your family? And the young lady broke down and began to weep and said, yes, I do. He said, that's just to tell you that God never ordained this kind of thing. This is not God's will. And she said, but, and he said, but before you answer, let me explain something. We all can make mistakes. And people don't go to school to be good parents. There's only one book that they read or should. It's God's Word. If your parents did not read the book, it's hard to expect them to be good parents apart from what they saw their parents do and try to copy it. And that's not always the best approach. I know it is in my life. I want my son and my other son to be a better parent than I have been. I, man, I fail more than I can count. This is not about perfecting parenthood or fatherhood. It's a matter about it doing it as close as you can to what the book that was written about it says. And the counselor, counselor in this case communicated with a young lady, made contact with her family, got them back together, sat down with the family. That family he paid for a trip to California, sat in his office and counseled that family about getting this daughter back in relationship with him. And may I tell you, it was a great success. And by that time, the father and the mother both had moved in, in a direction that was much more helpful to compliance to God's word. And a lot of apologies were offered and repentance was ex exchanged. And this family was restored on that basis. It's interesting, too, that the final way that I'll, I'll mention in regard to this business of provoking children to rat is discouragement. A child who never hears a dad or a father to compliment them or encourage them in some way or in setting a child's sail for a troubled life. I was reading a few weeks ago again the basis of one of what I consider the story in the Old Testament. I won't go into detail. Brother Mike, is your clock still, is your phone still set for noon? Thank you. Because I don't know what time it is. I can't see the clock and I don't know why. Let it go off. I'll stop when the bells ring. But anyway, in the story of the scriptures, and uh, this one I won't read it for the sake of time, but you can read it when you get home. It's Genesis chapter 29, verses 15 through 18. Laban was uh, Jacob's uncle, as you recall the story. And the consequence in this story is that uh, insecurity is... Uh, 
is worrying and fearing losing what you have. In the story, the son of Laban, the name was Leah, drew her sense of security from her husband Jacob. But she no doubt lived with the constant fear that he would abandon her for Rachel. If the source of our security is vulnerable, we'll never truly be at peace. And the fact of the matter is, Leah seems to think that having children will help her keep her husband. Her first son's name was Reuben. literally means, see, I have a son. And hoping having a son would get her security, she longed for long past. That's what we refer to as conditional love. And it's not a good kind of love. When Leah had her third son, they named him Levi. In Hebrew, it literally means attached or attachment. Seems she thought that Jacob, you know, his heart would be hers because of what she had done. Leah kept having children. Not necessarily because she loved kids, but apparently trying to make sure she outperformed Rachel so that Jacob would love her more. Leah was the epitome of insecurity. Someone has pointed out some basic root causes of insecurity. Let me note a few. First off, there's first of all parent rejection, especially a father. A father's rejection of a child, and especially a girl, seems to have more effect than a father who doesn't have a great relationship to a son. The way in which the father shows or fails to show acceptance reaches into our adult lives in several ways. I think in the past I've told you about a young lady who taught for us in our Christian school when we were in Alabama. A fine, brilliant young lady. Uh, She has more degrees behind her name than I'll ever have. Uh, Four or five degrees and, and very intelligent, very sharp. But her father rejected her. He just did not love her the way he loved the rest of the boys. She was the only girl in the family. And no matter what she did, it didn't seem like that she could ever match up to what was going on. She eventually uh, came to teach for us in our school. And uh, while she was there, she began to have a lot of problems. Uh, They were problems that obviously attached themselves to insecurity because uh, it showed itself in an eating disorder where she would eat and then she would purge. And I honestly think she was the most insecure person I had ever met in my life. And I honestly thought being in the class we gave her with some young people who were, I thought, very uh, well, I thought they would challenge her thinking. She'll have to study a little bit on some things, and this will be good for her. This will really get her into the program. And the consequence was she got worse, and she got worse, and she got worse, and we had to finally call her folks. And uh, her father came down, and I met him. When I met him, I knew exactly where the problem was. His first words out of his mouth when he met her at the school when we introduced ourselves and took him to her classroom. Well, her brothers never had this problem. That's all she needed to hear. Your brothers never had this problem. And so it was downhill from there. And to this day, honest, I don't know where the young lady is, but may God have mercy on her. So in the case of this particular story concerning Leah, it seems the rejection was a big deal. The way in which a father shows or fails to show that acceptance. In, in Leah's case, she was, a, she was pawned off on Jacob by the father. You remember the story? He covered her with a veil so Jacob would not know 
the deception until it was too late. I feel for Leah. Can you even imagine the effect this had on her? It would seem to me her father wanted her to leave home. Even worse, his opinion of her was so low that he thought she would never be chosen for a wife and he needed to resort to a deceit to get her married off early or first. When Jacob lifted the veil, his reaction when he found out whom he had married reinforced her feelings of insecurity, inadequacy. He did not want Leah. He wanted Rachel. He seems to have made no effort to hide those feelings. It's pretty clear that Leah never felt she was good enough and either her father or her husband's sight. It's also important to note and understand that in what children think of God is based primarily on the picture they draw from their father. And I don't mind telling you, that's probably one of the shakiest points of uh, truth that a father has to deal with. Many times children need something of a physical illustration to help them to perceive and understand what is this word father. What's this thing mean and how does it relate? And, and I say to you that every father in this room has an obligation to make sure that you project to your children as close as you can a God-likeness. Never match it, we know that, and far from it, but it does not excuse us from the effort to illustrate it and to model it to the best of our spiritual ability. So the concept is that God's love is unconditional. He who knows you best loves you most. And I think that's one of the most securing things in the whole of the whole New Testament. He who knows you most loves you best. The third or second thing is it's not only parent rejection, it's also the pain of comparison. Pain of comparison creates insecurity. Leah was compared to her sister Rachel and probably had been all her life. Leah seemed to know her father felt she was not pretty. Jacob clearly loved Rachel more than her. Leah resorted to the one area she could beat the other sister in, and she could bear more children and especially seemingly sons. What she did not seem to know was no matter how many children she had, Jacob would always, Jacob would always love Rachel more. And the third thing is the possibility of loss creates insecurity. Anytime we feel insecure when we attach significance to that which we cannot take, be taken from us, Leah feared losing Jacob. She was insecure in that. So sadly, Leah had several sons. Her sons were her security against her husband's deciding to leave her or send her away. And um, what do you have is a good question for you and me. What do you have that can't be taken from you? That's the only security you have. What can't be taken from you? That's the only security you've got. You can't name a single thing that you have that somebody can take that would offer you security if you're smart. If you're smart. Because if somebody can take it, you can lose it. And, if, and by the way, there's nothing hack-proof anymore, evidently, and not even your brain. You know, If somebody wants what you've got, eh, they'll get it, and they can get it. So if you anchor your security in that, uh, you're an insecure person. 
what you have to anchor yourself in to not be an insecure person is to, in, to anchor it in what can't be taken from you. So you ought to give it a long thought. I would say the first thing. I'd say the only thing that you or I or anybody else has <clears throat> that cannot be taken from us is our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is the only thing that is eternally secure. They can't take it from you. If you get captured by the Iraqis, and uh, they're going to torture you for all your worth, but they will, will simply stop the process if you somehow give up your salvation. You can't even give it up. It's not about having it something in a box or something on a piece of paper that God signed and said you're saved. Okay, I'll give it back. It's not a monopoly game. It's not something that you can just decide, okay, look, hey, guys, quit the torture, and I just won't be a Christian anymore. Uh, that's not possible. It's the one thing that can't be taken from you, and it's the one thing you can't give away. You don't give away your salvation when you share the gospel. You give away the gospel that brought you salvation to somebody else, but you don't give away your salvation. So there's one thing in a whole of life that you have that you can be anchored to that gives you security, and it's the only thing. So a good and honest question would be for every person in this room and for fathers especially. Are you anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ, is is He your anchor point? Or do you know for sure, for certain, that you've been saved by the grace of God? And if that's true, then I say to you that salvation is yours for eternity, not just for time. And I would say to you that it sets the stage for you to have indeed a uh, a family and a home that would bring honor and glory uh, to the Lord. And I would say to you that your family will be the better for it because fathers are the key people in our lives to hear early and clearly about knowing Christ and the personal relationship we can have with Him. And um, it's not what we do and it's not how much money we have or we. it's what we know. It's the salvation we have that's Christ-given and He has purchased and He has provided. I say to you, the Father Factory is so essential to our families unless and until we fix and repair the problems of uh, the fallacy of fathers. There's no programs in our community, no educational systems will produce by schools or otherwise. Any help, even from government, can change this problem. Strong, godly families are the key to our having a strong community and a strong country at its most basic level. We need... We must have godly fathers at the helm. Father's first priority is to know Christ as Savior. And then to know that He knows. Not just I hope so and not just I think so, but rather I know Jesus Christ is my Savior. And therein He can lead His family, direct His family as He should. It's a story, and I think years and years ago I shared it with you. It was a young lad walked up to his father many years ago and said with deep earnestness, Dad, if you don't do something to help me, I'm going to commit suicide tonight. The father, who had been busy making money, was astonished, stunned to know that anything in the world was wrong with his son. The boy went on to relate his ventures in sin and the, con the uh, contracting of a social disease. 
The father immediately sent the boy to an institution for treatment. In a year, he came home and was believed to be cured. The young man married a beautiful girl who soon gave birth to a son. When the baby was born, the mother paid with her life. She died at birth. The young boy, or the young father, already overwhelmed with the grief from the wife's death, had to bear the added tragic news that the baby was deficient physically and mentally. In desperation, he picked up a revolver, went outside, took his own life. However, the story didn't end there. This baby lived. He stood one day in a long line of people in Buffalo, New York, waiting to shake the hand of the President of the United States, William McKinley. As he grasped the hand of the President, he drew a gun, took the President's life, and not long afterward, he was brought to justice and was executed by our country. He was a fatherless son. And it doesn't matter whether he's fatherless in a physical matter or whether he's fatherless in impacting manner. He's probably going to have the same problem. So what the responsibility is, two or three. One, for every father they need to know for sure, for certain, no matter what else you know or you don't know, you need to know for sure on, on biblical basis that you have placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and you know for sure you're going to heaven not because what you do, but what he's done. It has to be based on faith, not works. Second thing is to understand that a father who has that personal faith and knows it for sure needs to make sure his family walks by the same light. Every father is the priest of his own home. And I believe every father will stand accountable to the Lord for how he leads his family, spiritually speaking. That's pretty much predominant through the epistles of Paul and in the Old Testament even. The third thing, and it's exceedingly important, for those about us who we may know of as fatherless, we need to, as Bible-believing fathers who know Christ and know him for sure and who are doing what we should be doing for our own families, we ought to do what James 1.27 says. We ought to visit the fatherless. We ought to step in to do what we can to help those who do not have a father who either was not in, you know, he may be alive somewhere, but he's not ministering as he should as a father. There ought to be people who love people like that who would step to the plate and say, hey, I want to be there. I want to do what I can to help. And not just in word, but deed. Make it count. Do what the Heavenly Father would do as he's known in the Old Testament. A father to the fatherless. It's a serious matter, and it's not going to go away. May God help us to fulfill our roles as fathers and to fulfill our roles as believing fathers to those about us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for our Heavenly Father. And we want to thank you, Father, for what you do for us. It makes our lives what they are. Oh, we, we're none of us perfect. There's not a father that's ever been born that has been perfect. We do some things right, and we do a lot of things that are not so right. We make some mistakes, and we make some big ones, and we make some small ones. It's not perfection we're talking about. It's a matter of fulfilling responsibility that's set forth in the Holy Scriptures that is adequately written so we who are not perfect people can fulfill them and be obedient. So, Father, this morning as we've shared these truths from your Word, I pray they'll take heart men in this room, the fathers in this room would recognize that there are many fathers who did not fulfill their responsibility the way they should. That does not mean that we should rest in that. It does mean that every father and every grandfather in this room
ought to do their very best to influence another generation to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to encourage them in the family relationship that they know Christ and live for Christ and be the priest of their homes. And, Father, that we also at the same time serve as a fatherless friend to a fatherless person. So I pray you'll help us to do what we ought to do in that realm. Help us to be a help and an encouragement. And certainly may there not be a Christian anywhere around who's fatherless, that there wouldn't be Christians around, and especially men of solid home home life who would not step up to the plate and do what we can do to help that fatherless person. So I pray you use us to this end. And Father, help us not to be content to curse the darkness about the problem, but help us to be willing to light a candle to do something about it. And Father, I pray for all the fathers in this room right here, right now. And I pray that you'll work in our hearts. I pray that you'll deal with us this morning and help us to be better at what we do, either fathers or grandfathers. And I pray that you'll help us to cast a long shadow of impact on our families and friends about us and pray that we might be able to help others to know what it is to be and have a godly father. I thank you for my father today and thank you for the impact he had on my life and thank you for the things he taught me and trained me in. Thank you for the great times we had together. Thank you for all those moments of conversation that he always seemed to have something to say to help me to be who I ought to be. And thank you that he helped me to establish my identity in Christ. And I pray today that every father in this room would understand that role that we've been given, how high and and lofty it is of responsibility toward our next generation of young people. So help us to be all that we ought to be for the glory of God. And help us to impact another generation so that our city will be a better place to live and our county and country will be a better place to be. And Father, I pray that we in our own way, in our own small setting, can have a great impact on the direction our community goes. Bless now to the invitation, and if there are men here who have never trusted Christ, if there are ladies here who have never trusted Christ, do not know what it is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray for them that they may today come and allow someone to take a Bible and show them from the Scriptures how they can know Christ and know it for sure. So I ask for your grace, your mercy to be applied in our setting even this morning. And for believers, I pray you'll challenge them to be all they ought to be in Christ. And may they bring glory to you all the days of their life. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for fathers, and especially for our Heavenly Father, what he's done to bring us to himself in Christ. Bless this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with us, please, and if you need a hymn book, we invite you to turn to 319.